Well, good morning. Let's just take a minute just to ask for God's help in the midst of this task. Lord, we, we are desperate for you. We know that the gravity of sin is felt, each one of us, day to day, moment by moment. And so we ask for your presence to destroy that gravity, to cause your spirit to be here at work in our midst, because you promise that your spirit is amongst your people. And so, Lord, may our affections, may our thoughts, may our attitudes be affected by who you are and not necessarily by side words or things that are going on in our minds. May we take a moment and take this time to think highly of our great and awesome God. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Now, as many of you know, Scripture doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens amongst people, amongst the people of God. And so the Word of God is presented to the people of God, and it happens at a point of time in history. And today we are in Deuteronomy 6. So this was the fifth book in the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. And so before we read from it, I thought it was appropriate just to go through a quick background of the context of what exactly the book of Deuteronomy leads us towards. Just to give you a brief summary, uh, it's at the end of their trek in the wilderness. So as you know, Moses grew up in Egypt. He grew up as a prince of Egypt. He was adopted. He tries to bring about insurrection against the ruler of Egypt on his own power. And God does not allow for that. In fact, Moses goes away for 40 years. So he's probably about 40 when he's sent away. It's at 80 that he's called back. And God calls him into his service to rescue his people. And God wants to make sure his people know that it's not Moses' power, but it's the power of God that rescues his people. And so this is actually after 40 years in the wilderness. They get to the promised land early on, send in 12 spies, 10 of them come back and they go, it's not doable. We can't overtake the people of this land. And so because of that disobedience of the 10, the people of God wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so it's at the end of this 40-year wandering that the people of God, the Israelites, come to the verge of the promised land, and they come... Uh, at the border of the promised land, and God tells Moses, you will not enter the promised land. You will not enter the promised land that is a foreshadowing of the promised land that we look to. So the promised land that the Israelites look to is just but a representation of heaven and the new Jerusalem that we one day will be in. And so they get to that. Moses is told, you will not enter. And so Moses prepares three addresses before they go into the promised land. And that's what Deuteronomy is. It's these three addresses. It's restating the law again. It's saying, this is the law. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. And the realities of the people of God living out the word of God is what Moses wants to get across. 
So, in chapter 5, he covers, which is just before the, the passage that we're going to cover today, he covers the ten words or the ten commandments. And the, then there's a covering of the meditation on those words. And those cover loving God and loving people. So the first four deal with loving God. The five through ten, the last six, deal with honoring parents, do not kill, steal, commit adultery, false witness, or covet. And so Moses is, is giving them kind of full barrel, full two barrels of what the law is. He's saying, this is the law. This is what God wants you to do. And the reality is, if anyone could have kept the law in their own power, Moses probably was the closest that they would get. In fact, they get to the Mount Sinai early on when the law is given, and the elders start to come close to the mountain with Moses, and they say, you know what, we can't do this. They see the presence of God in full power there, and they fall back, and they say, you go on for us, you're our representative, and there Moses sees the back of God. Now, how many here have seen, has seen the physical back of God? None of us, right? If anyone could have kept these commandments and laws, it should have been Moses. And yet it, he couldn't. So he was a shadow hero of the hero yet to come, which is Christ. So here we get to Deuteronomy 6. This is what um, the people of God have called the Shema. It means to hear, to listen, to obey. It's kind of it's one word that uh, connotates many different aspects of listening, staying tuned. It's saying, hey, listen up. Listen to what God is saying. So let's read this together. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded you, commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes, his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply, multiply greatly as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So hear, Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We are called as a people of God to love God along the way. We are called as a people of God to love God along the way. That's going to be the basic premise of what we're going to be talking about today. First aspect of loving God along the way, we must know God before we can love him. How can you love a God that you don't fully know? How can you love a God that you only kind of, sort of get? We have a lot of images of who God should be, right, in our culture. God is love, but if you talk about God being wrathful or judge, judgeful, God having an aspect to his nature 
that is counter to what you think he should, then suddenly you're like, well, that's not the God I want to serve. But the reality is, God is who he is regardless of who we say he is. And so when we come to God, we realize his transcendence. We realize he is wholly other than us. He is not like man. But we also understand his imminence because we understand his closeness, his, the aspects of his nature that he's come down as his son and been with us. He's walked with us. He was the son of God in flesh. So we understand that. But in understanding his transcendence, I think, is a good place to start because many times we, we rush to his closeness without understanding who this God is that we serve. What does it mean to serve a holy God? I think the Israelites saw this firsthand. In fact, I know they saw it firsthand. The God of Israel was holy. Anyone that touched that mountain would have died instantly, the mountain that, that Moses goes up. And so Moses stands, is standing here before the people of God, and he's saying, fear God. Yes, fear God. If there's anyone to be afraid of, it should be God himself. He's holy. He's not you. And many times our inconsistencies of God deal with our own nature of trying to make God into our image. That's not who God is. We are the image of God, but we can't make God into our image. There's aspects of who we are that transcend us. There's aspects that God has made us to be. Listen to how Jesus puts it in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear, those who, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This passage points to a deep understanding. The Shema points to a deep understanding that our fear is connected to our worship. In fact, all throughout Scripture, if you look up fear and trembling, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find worship. Whenever someone comes into the presence of a holy God, they are in fear and they, have, they tremble. It's physical. It's aspects that... It's not a compartmental fear like terror. Don't think of fear in this sense as a, a horror movie, that you're afraid of your life. But the reality is there's someone who can not only take your life but put you into eternal torment forever. That is true fear. And so when we come to God's presence, we realize that standing there in his, in his presence, he is not like us. He is not us. And so if you, if you want a few passages just to look up on your own, Isaiah 19.1, Jeremiah 5.22 and 33.9, and a whole slew of other ones deal with fear and trembling. In fact, let me give you this quote by C.S. Lewis from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you you fathers out there haven't yet read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe to your kids or any of the Narnia Chronicles, I challenge you. They're amazing chronicles. They're amazing uh, parables to get across spiritual truths. So listen to what C.S. Lewis writes between Lucy and and Susan and Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver dealing with Aslan, the great lion that represents Christ. Is he a man? Asks Lucy. 
As when a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan's the lion, the lion, the greatest lion. Oh, says Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous to meet a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie. No mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, says Lucy. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good, and he's the king, I tell you. God is good, and he is the king. When we come to our, the Lord's presence, if we're depending on our own self to enter into his presence and to have that understanding that he's going to accept us with our sin and all, then we have misplaced our understanding of God. We have believed a lie because we cannot come into the presence of God apart from the righteousness of Christ applied to you as his, his children. A true, a true child of God will understand the aspects that we start at a place that we are dissimilar to God. We are unlike God. Listen to Jonathan Edwards as he writes, A true love for God must begin with a delight in his holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute. For no other attribute is truly lovely without this. So when we come to God, we come understanding he's holy, he's other than us, we understand that uh, fear is a starting place where we fear who God is based on who we are. It's impossible for us to come to a holy God with pride. It's impossible to come to a holy God thinking you deserve to be in his presence. But the reality is he's made a way. See, the thing is, God is so transcendent. He's outside of our creation. We can't act upon him to force him to act. But the reality is that he has made himself known through his son, through his word. He has come to the point of making himself known to us. Isn't that great news? The reality is we, we, don't, we don't have to go and try to make ourselves known to God because he already knows us. He already knows who you are, and he's made himself known to us. So, whatever your understanding of God is today, I can tell you right now, it's probably not big enough. It's probably not glorious enough. If he were to stand here physically in this room, I think everyone would fall down dead. That's the reality of our God. Our finite brains tend to apprehend rather than comprehend God's imminence. God is holy, he's righteous, he's eternal, he's faithful, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's unchanging, he's impassable, he's infinite, he's all-powerful, he's sovereign, he's jealous, he's all-wise, all-knowing, he's self-sufficient, he's self-existent, he's good. He is the redeemer and rescuer of his children. The immense task as men has always been trying to understand God. We could spend a thousand lifetimes and still not 
plumb even the shallow end of who God is. But he's made himself known to us. That is good news. The task of the church and each person within it is to know God and to know him from whom you were created and to make him known. Listen to this other quote by Jonathan Edwards. You might notice a theme. I kind of like Edwards, but (laughs) very smart guy. Um, Real Christians do not first see that God loves them and later on find out that he is lovely. They first see that God is lovely, that Christ is excellent and glorious. Their hearts are captivated by this view of God. Their love for God arises chiefly from this view. True love begins with God and loves him for his own sake. Self-love begins with self and loves God in in interests of selves. So true love begins with God and loves him for his own sake. That is where our love needs to start. That's where our love needs to flow from. And that's where we need to rest in. We need to look at Christ and realize that Christ is the exact representation of the Father. Christ is God in flesh. And he has made himself known. We're not grasping at straws anymore as as people, but we see, we have seen God in the flesh through his word. Now, fathers, I know many of you probably have gotten uh, the best father type mugs or the world's number one father. But let me tell you right now, you're drinking out of God's mug because the father of heaven is the best father. That's the reality. No matter how you look at it, we are just shadow fathers of the Heavenly Father. We are shadow fathers of the Heavenly Father, you fathers in here. God is good, and as his Father, we imitate him poorly. But yet we still imitate him, whether we like to or not. As a father, we imitate him poorly. Instead, we look and we point our children to the Father in heaven. We point our children to the Father that gave up his son for us. I can remember my father um, teaching me these things and having time. I mean, we would spend hours at a time talking about the depths of the gospel. And still, we would talk more. And and I I don't think we ever exhausted, and still today we don't ever exhaust the depths of the gospel. And so as... As fathers, that is our call. We are to know the Father through the Son and to make him known to our children. That is the cry of my heart as a father. I would love to see my daughter and son grow up to love God, to love Christ more than anything, including their father or mother on earth. That should be the cry of all of us as parents in here, is to see our children grasp the infinite greatness of God and to be dazzled, be delighted in his goodness, his mercy. May the next generation not tire of looking at the riches of who Christ is. Second point, 
We love God by listening to him. Jesus wrote, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How are we listening to Christ? How do we listen to Christ? The Israelites heard the physical voice of God, and they trembled. We hear the voice of God through his word. And many times we tremble too because we know we can't live up to the task. We can't live out the Ten Commandments perfectly. Everyone in here has fallen short. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. But we listen to God through Christ. We listen to God through his spirit. We understand that it's because of the righteousness applied by the perfect life of Christ that we can listen and apply little by little. I was thinking about this truth um, while I was preparing this and actually uh, looking at my lawn. We have a horrible yard. We're still dealing with issues of uh, when we bought the house that the yard hadn't been kept up. And, And so last year I said, you know what? I remember back to when I was a kid, my dad bought this stuff called zoysia. And it's a it's type of grass you put in. And as a kid, I was like, well, these are just little plugs. These will never do anything. Well, now I go back home, and I see the, the lawn that they have. And it's amazing how it pushes out weeds, and it pushes everything that is not like it out. I think that's the grace of God that is in our lives. It's similar to that. Because what happens is, God, at conversion, plants these little pockets of grace. And your life's transformed. But over time, it starts pushing out the weeds of sin. It starts underrooting and and killing the things that you once liked, realizing that there's a greater pleasure, there's a greater one. And so I, I find it fascinating that God has given us his word. And we can listen to his word each and every day by opening up this book. Every time I open this book, I don't, I don't know about you, but I've never gotten to a passage where I'm like, oh, I've already read this 50 times. I don't know if I need to read this anymore. The reality is the word of God is new. It's active. And so you read Deuteronomy 6, or you read any passage, and the, the Spirit of God speaks to you through that passage. The Spirit of God enlivens that passage. It's called illumination. So rather than God saying, you messed up in the garden, I'm not going to reveal myself anymore to you, instead he was gracious enough to give us a book, to give us a witness, so that when we open it up, we realize our sin and we repent and believe again. When we open it up, we realize who Christ is and we wonder in awe at who he is in light of who we are. The Spirit gives you the ability to read and understand. Without the Spirit, this is just words. There's good words in here, but with the Spirit, there's power. And the Spirit hovers over this word. The Spirit delights when uh, people read the word, and he communes with you through that, through faith in Christ. And so allow the Spirit to fill you with a greater vision of God through his word allow you to hear the Word of God not as just pages of text written 2,000 years ago or older, but allow you to hear it as God's Word to you today. He's preserved His Word for you to hear it and to apply it. 
God gives us good gifts. And those good gifts are through his word. Listen to Jesus in Luke, Luke 11. I tell, you, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So before you sit and read to hear the word of God, ask God to quicken to your heart what he wants you to know. Ask God to bring the word to mind throughout the day. Because the reality is, you will never, it will be harder for you to hear the voice of God in the midst of distraction if you don't know the word of God itself. And so God loves to meet with his children. We do not sit passively and hear the word of God, but we must ask God for clarity and understanding. We seek the spirit of God to help us in the task of hearing and obeying the scripture. We see the scripture through the light of Christ's life. He lived the perfect life. He died for our sins. He rose again. And so that's applied to his children as we meditate on the word, as we seek the word. The gospel communes and enlivens our spirit to be able to say, I cannot live this out, God, but with your strength I can. That's the reality. That's where we're living. So we covered that we love God by knowing him. We love God by hearing him. The third thing is we love God with our whole self. This is not a a half-in sort of venture. This is the reality that you belong to God. You were created by God, and you belong to God. He has cried mine over you as his children. And so when we come to God with our half-self, that does not please God. And let's be honest, all of us are there at times. We don't want to fully submit at times. But the reality of Christ brings us to the cross again. We lay our sins before him. We lay our idol factory of our heart before our awesome God. And he pours out forgiveness. He empowers us. So, a life fully sanctified is one that, a life fully given is one of our whole self. What does it mean to love God with all of our heart? What does it mean to love God with all of our soul and with all of our strength? I think about uh, one, of, one of my great heroes of the faith, D.L. Moody. When he was in Dublin, he heard the words by a famous evangelist that the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully consecrated to him. And so Moody thought, I want to be that person. By God's grace, I want to be fully consecrated to him. And so this heart, soul, strength encompasses everything about you. It encompasses your whole person, fully sold out to God, realizing that if God 
wants you to do something, if he wants you to go over to Africa on mercy ships, you're going to follow. If he, wants you, if he wants you to stay here in New England and plant a gospel-centered church, you're going to stay here in New England and be joyful about planting a gospel-centered church and be a part of the local church. So the reality is, is God has spoken mine over your life. If you have faith in Christ, if you put your trust and treasure in Christ, So when we think today of what it means for the heart to love God, let's just focus in on that for a second. When we think of the heart, a lot of times we have this Greek understanding of the heart where the affections are are emotive and and we, we think of Valentine's Day or some other aspect of the heart. The reality is the Jewish person saw the heart as the center of the person. And so when... When you see this word heart, it actually meant thinking, it meant feeling, it meant affection, it meant volitional will, it meant a lot of what we, we encompass head and heart or uh, thinking and heart uh, in our terminology. And so basically, when Moses says, love God with all your heart, he's talking about the inner life of the person. The person that starts with the affections, goes to the thinking, and then outwardly to the... the uh, the actions. So that is the idea here. It's the whole inner life of the person, the inner affections and thinking. The reality is that our thinking is affected by our desires. That's the reality. So when we think of the heart, a lot of times our affections, what we really want, a lot of, most of the time, if not all the time, affects how we think. So when you say, you're, you're sitting there yesterday afternoon, it's warm, and you go, I really want ice cream. And you go, well, I, I shouldn't have ice cream. And your mind starts saying, well, you know, you remember you're on a diet, and you said, no, no, I really want ice cream. Your affections, in, in essence, sometimes shortcut what you know to be true. You say, well, I, I don't need it, but I really want it. And so that's the reality here, is that... Uh, the heart dictates the thinking. The heart and the mind work together, but our affections need to be captured by Christ. Um, listen, to the, listen to the opposite of that in James 1, 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, in its full grown, brings forth death. Do not be, be deceived, brothers, Do not be deceived, beloved brothers. So the reality is, our affections can work contrary to our love for God. In fact, Romans 7, I believe, is all about affections that are misplaced. And and this is coming from the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine what you and I feel like in our inner lives? Paul's saying he knows that Christ is the all, end all, and being. But the reality is that we, you and I, as normal people... We deal with affections day to day. We deal with uh, mistrust and, and dislike. We deal with issues with driving. We deal with issues between parents and children. All these things are happening at the affection level. It's wanting one thing so bad that you're willing to tell people no and to, to, uh, to rebel. It's insurrection. It's basically, even if it's a good thing, if it's not done in faith, it's sin. And so um, 
Listen to, to John Piper's words. I think this encompasses what I'm trying to say, but he says it so much more eloquently. <laughs> to love God does not mean to meet his needs, but rather to delight in him, to be captivated by his glorious power and grace, to value him above all other things on the earth. All the rest of the commandments are the kinds of things that, we'll do, that we will do from our hearts if our hearts are truly delighted with and resting in the glory of God's grace. Where has your heart been this week? Where is your heart going to be this coming week? The reality is our affections need to be captivated by the glorious work of Christ. The reality is our affections need to be captivated by the glorious work of Christ so that it transforms our thinking it transforms our being and transforms our doing. This is not some mamby-pamby understanding of the sweet by and by. It's not some aspect of, well, if you just look to God, it's going to be pure and satisfying. I remember as a kid, uh, there were people that told me, oh, well, heaven's going to be worshiping God forever. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to be there if it's, just, if it's like our worship down here. But the reality is, Worshiping God forever is better than anything you could imagine. That is the reality. When you see God with the veil off, you're going to be undone. That is who God is. That is who we will see one day, soon. It should amaze us all. It should cause our affections to go towards that when we're sitting in traffic or when we're at work. Our affections should be like, wow, one day I'm not going to have these broken relationships. I'm going to have Christ. I'm going to be able to drink the pure water that is living and be satisfied. The soul, let's move on to the soul now. The soul is, is the life and breath. It is your being. It's your whole being. A lot of people think of soul just as some abstract piece of you that you can sell for something to the devil one day or something like that. There, there's abstract senses of soul within our culture or, or within uh, how we look at soul. There's all these stories and weird stories about selling stuff to the devil using your soul. But the reality is our soul is deeper than that. Our soul is our being. It's our life. It's who we are. It's our personality. It's, it's the part of us that God has made that cannot be changed. And so when Paul in Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, this is your spiritual worship, that is the soul. It's your body, it's who you are, it's, it, the reality is the unseen, but the reality is that Paul's getting at in that passage is present your whole self. Paul, under the inspiration, is showing the attitude that we belong to Christ, that we are Christ, and that we are to give to him our whole selves. That means from the affections to the inner life. How is your understanding of that affected? How do you see that Christ is growing larger in your estimation? How is yourself given to Christ daily? That, those are all questions 
that you and I have to wrestle with because there are times that that I'm driving and I don't feel like I belong to Christ because that person just cut me off. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm upset, you know? It's, and that's the reality. Is that's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's like, hey, do you think Christ cares about that? Do you think Christ cares about the fact that someone runs a, runs a red light in front of you and almost hits you? Of course he does. Everything belongs to Christ. But he also uses trials and circumstances to make you more like him. So those trials aren't there just because, you know, just because they're there for a purpose. They're there to make you more Christ-like. Following after God means the impossible. It means trading all for the pearl of greatest price. It means leaving everything for the sake of the Savior. It means that you are owned completely by the Savior. You relinquish all rights and all desires up to Christ and his treasure. Christ is all-sufficient, all-compelling. He's the one that nothing can compare to. And so Christ says, I want your life. You go, yep, it's yours. Because it's like trading a bag of chips for all the glories of a billion dollars. It's like, oh, do do you want that bag of chips, God? Here you go. And God gives you a full banking account of his righteousness applied to you. His righteousness through Christ is what he sees when he looks at his children. And that's the glorious good news of the gospel. Christ lived that life. He lived in his strength. And he loved God perfectly. That is who Christ is. And so we follow, we follow a Savior that has gone before us perfectly in every sense. So we are just shadow fathers. We are shadow mothers. We are shadow teenagers of the one who has gone before. Christ lived out the perfectness. And so whatever goodness that we see is because Christ is in us. That's amazing good news. I don't know about you, but if you read this, I feel overwhelmed. I feel I don't love God enough. I don't love him with myself enough. And so that's why the third part is so, so you love him with your heart, soul, and strength. The strength is how you apply what he has called you to do. And the reality is that he's strong when you're weak. So if you're here thinking, I'm weak as a father. I need help to carry out my responsibilities. I'm weak as a son or daughter. I need help to love my parents. That's where Christ comes in and he shows his life gloriously. Like the one, like the, the armor bearer that followed Jonathan up the cliff to take the, the battle, you, we are following Christ. And so it looks impossible but we follow a Savior that's more than able to carry the day. That's where we live. That's where we abide. We abide behind the perfect man, the perfect God. We run into the fray with our swords open in order to follow the one who goes before us, and he wins the battle. Listen to John's words, 1 John 4. 
He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Listen to that again. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected by love. We love because he has first loved us. That is the reality. That is the good news. He has first loved us. We are living in the strength that God provides. We're living on the vicarious nature of who Christ is. It's not for our own name. It's not for our own glory. As glorious as it will be in eternity to see children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren following hard after God. That's not ultimately where our hope is in. I would love to see that. I'm sure each father and mother here would love to see their children following hard after God, transformed by the gospel and transforming others through the power of God, bringing the gospel to bear on the culture around us. So we come and he provides the strength. That is where we live. That is where we rest. Okay, I have one more quote here by Jerry Bridges. Talking about what it means to love God. Have you ever thought about what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? I don't think any of us fully plumb the depths of that commandment. But here are some obvious aspects. I'm going to warn you right now, these are, these are very humbling. Your love for God transcends all other desires. That's an aspect of loving God. Two, like David, you long to gaze upon his beauty and seek fellowship with him. Three, you rejoice in meditating on his word. You rejoice in meditating on his word. And like Jesus, you rise early to pray. Four, you always delight to do his will, regardless of how difficult it may be. Five, a regard for his glory governs and meditates, motivates, sorry, a regard for his glory governs and motivates everything you do. You're eating, you're drinking, you're working, you're playing, you're buying, you're selling, you're reading and speaking, and dare I mention it, even you're driving. <laughs> Six, You are never discouraged or frustrated by adverse circumstances because you are confident that God is working all things together for your good. Seven, you recognize his sovereignty in every event of your life and consequently receive both success and failure from his hand. Eight, you are always content because you know he will never leave or forsake you. And nine, your first petition in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, is the most important prayer you pray. These are all aspects of what we are called to live by in the Savior that we love and, and 
and worship. Let's pray. Dear Father, we know that you are glorious. We know that you are good. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing good. But with you, all things are possible. And so we follow hard after the Savior. We look to Christ. We realize he's lived the perfect life that we can never live. He's died the death for our sins. And that he's rose again. And one day he's coming soon. The realities of his kingdom are being felt on us even now. And the full reality will be felt on that day. So as we worship, even today, may we look to the Savior for your strength that you provide. May we look to our God for sustenance, for the Father has given us every good gift in Christ. So Lord, we need you, we're desperate for you, and our all in all is in you. Thank you, thank you for providing the strength to love you with our whole selves. In Jesus Christ, amen.